Hey, Emily. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Doing well, thanks. How are you doing? Pretty good. I was at band practice for my church last night. Oh, that's right. And I know you play an instrument as well. Yes, we're both. Would you call yourself a musician? You know, I, I think <laughs> if you play an instrument, I would not call myself a professional musician. Sure. So <laughs> I remember when I first started to play, you know, music for praise and worship, I was really terrible at improvising. I was trained classically, so I learned to read music and play classical music and all that. But then I started playing off of chord charts. And I remember one time I was playing with some friends who were singing along, and it was so bad. I should say I was so bad that my <laughs> friend came over and physically took my hands off the keyboard and put them back in my lap. Improvisation was not my strong suit at the time. It's really hard to go from only really knowing how to play off the score and then you have a chord chart and you're like, what am I supposed to do? That's right. But now I've only been using chord charts. And if you gave me a sheet of music, I would have a really hard time. <laughs> I'd have to very meticulously practice that. Yeah, I think that's the practice part. Actually, when I reflect on it, it it's had a pretty profound effect. So all of the exercises that I used to do when I was classically trained, all like the little runs and the scales and the ways that we did runs and the classical music repertoire, I can feel them coming out in the way that I improvise. So the kinds of things that I do when I play keyboard, I can tell they are locked into, sometimes locked into or constrained by the way I was shaped and formed by classical music. That's really interesting. So in our conversation that we're going to share today, we talked to Dr. Aaron Defoe Hunter, who is an associate professor of Christian ethics at Fuller Seminary. And we talked about improvisation and how that relates to theology and trying to figure out how to live as Christians in a time that's unique. Yeah, I do think that sometimes Christians live the Christian life thinking that we are locked into doing things a certain way and that every ethical dilemma that we come across should be really simple to figure out if only we just apply a formula that we've been locked into for so long. But it just seems to me that life isn't like that. <laughs> that would be simpler, right? Right. She also talks about how uh, improvisation is kind of on the other extreme, not just doing whatever you want, that there is some form to it. And theology or Christian formation, you know, we do have some past and some formation that does help us think about what to do in the present based on the past and on the future. So our formation, like you're talking about, even in your classical training, it does come out in the way that we improvise on our present. And so theology as a tool to help us think about how to do that well. I would really hope that some of our Christian classical training in maybe it's scripture memory or just the, the stuff that we know we ought to keep should really show up somehow in the ways that we are improvising through the Christian life in the present. So we're excited to present to you this bonus episode with Dr. Aaron Defoe Hunter. I'm Aaron Defoe Hunter and I teach at Fuller Theological Seminary. My title is Associate Professor of Christian Ethics, but I also teach not only in medical ethics, intro ethics, Christian ethics, 
theological ethics generally, but I also teach formation classes, like spiritual formation for interest students, as well as my medical ethics classes, especially aimed for those who are becoming counselors and therapists. And so if you meet someone who is not a theologian, not a student in theology or ethics... Normal human beings, yes. And they ask you, you know, what do you do? How would you describe that to them? And then how... Why do you like it? So one of the ways I describe it for people who are maybe border, like not very involved in Christian life or have no idea what a seminary or theology is, or they think everybody goes to seminary becomes a a priest. That was my background, right, as a Catholic background. I try to explain to them that part of what I do is try to help people live into the Christian story. So every religious faith has a kind of understanding, narrative understanding, storied understanding of the world. And our task as Christians, or I would say because I went to a school for my PhD that had Jews and Muslims as well as others who were attending, one way of understanding what comparative ethics would be or what ethics is, is living into that story faithfully. So how do I perform the story? But the challenge, of course, is performing a story that often has a kind of ancient past, right? We have this, these ancient texts, these old stories. How do we live into those in our own moment? So I always say, in some sense, Christian ethics is always improvisation within the drama of God. So no one has ever lived our life, no one has ever lived my life, your life, in exactly the same way, the same place, the same socioeconomic context, your body, your space. So that's part of what I try to encourage people to do is connect the Christian story to their lived and living experience in their own context. Erin, I can imagine that some folks would take a word like improvisation on the Christian story and that that would create either some confusion or maybe some concern that the Christian story is itself a thing and improvisation on the thing, how does one do so faithfully? Does faithfully mean precision, adherent? How do you explain improvisation? Well, that's a great question. Part of how I explain improv, and of course, Sam Wells, who's a Christian ethicist, wrote a whole book on this. So if you really want to get into it, you can read Sam's book. But as I think of it, I think of uh, improv, the art of improv is always that you have actually a storyline that's developing. Improv actually isn't boundless. It is taking what is and what is handed to you, what's called accepting, and then building on that. And within the Christian story, what I'd say is that we have this advantage that we have a sort of centered story. We're entering in, as N.T. Wright and others have commented, we're invited into this ongoing story. So we know some of the past. We know some of how the story's gone before. And we actually know the end of the story. And we're invited into like the midst of that story to perform it faithfully with the end in mind. So when I talk about improv, what I'm really asking people to do is pay attention to that past, look to your future, and then where do those meet in your present moment? And how do you lean into that? So it's not, if you think of improv as like, well, whatever we want to do, right? Um, What I would say is that one of the disagreements we're having within the Christian faith right now, or many of them in ethics, would be a disagreement about how to tell that story. Like, that what we understand has happened in the past might be different, or how that impacts the present is different. It might be that we differ about the future too, but 
that's honestly, that's why we disagree. Um, and I think actually improv and narrative helps us understand those places of overlap, like where we can join together. And sometimes places where you're like, yeah, I don't, I can't really go there with you. I can't go all the way with, there with you. An example would, for me would be as a, uh, I'm an Anabaptist by conviction, which means I don't think that we can take up arms. And I mean, honestly, I think pacifism has a lot more to do with daily living than the military. But that's, a, but that's obviously a place where we disagree. So we find overlapping places of that story. Like we both believe in justice as Christians, right? We both believe Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Um, how do we build on that as much as possible? And then sometimes in improv, we might be improvising a little differently within that story, right? But that's an honesty about the way we have to rely on the Spirit to guide us. I appreciate the way in which you can talk about your Anabaptist conviction by leaving room for people who perform the story in another way. There are segments of our listenership, maybe, or people that we know for whom the openness is not there, that really performing is a matter of doing it right or mm -hmm. not doing it at all, faithfulness or unfaithfulness, in a kind of binaristic mm -hmm. way. What advice would you give to those of us who work in those contexts or have family members like that where it's just black or white? I have two brothers who are, and I mean this descriptively, not pejoratively, who are fundamentalists. And for as long as they've been Christians, they have a very dispensational sort of understanding of the scripture and the rapture. And, and of course that impacts me because they also have a very certain view, I won't even say conservative, what they consider a biblical view of women, right? So for most of my life, basically what I do is sort of apostate. They didn't come to my graduation from Fuller and various kinds of things. Now, the reason I tell this story is that we deeply disagree, right? I mean, to the point of, of my vocation in life. And I recognize in my brothers that they are living as faithfully as they can. They both do tend to have a much more what I've now learned would be a sort of an asset in some ways, which is this belief, right, which tends to see the world in a much more black and white way. Belief as a strength and Clifton strengths and various things. And there's a way that that can actually be very helpful. Like, there are times you want people to see the world as black and white, you know? If you're in Nazi Germany, like, you want somebody who's not going to compromise. You want your Jehovah's Witness, who happened to be the people who weren't compromising during Nazi Germany. It was the Jehovah's Witnesses who said, no, we won't go there with you. Like, we have our beliefs and we're not going to join you. So one way is to try to appreciate that there may be some goods in what people are holding fast to. <laughs> Another way of thinking about that I will throw out to people is to understand how human beings negotiate morality. And the truth is that as human beings, we all have moral intuitions. Um, so I often point people to moral psychologists like Jonathan Haidt, who's done a lot of work on why good people disagree and helps, I'll say especially, a lot of my friends in particular, I would say self-identify as progressives and liberals. I'll say, because I'm talking about my people here, right? It's very hard for them to be sympathetic to anybody who's conservative right now, right? It's just like, they're just wrong and I can't believe they believe this. So one of the things I think height helps us do is see the values undergirding those things. And why those values like 
a value of loyalty or a value of even something like purity, which we kind of don't like to talk about, but that those can actually have real purchase for people. There's concerns that people have underneath that. So trying to ask questions, to be curious about why people are so strongly built the way they are. I mean, I would say, or, or feel the way they do. But I, I would say for some of my family members, they were saved. I mean, my brother was rescued from, I think, a lot of really dark things. And he's also one of the least materialistic people I know. Absolutely generous. He's the person who takes people off the street. He doesn't fit in a box, it turns out. Mm -hmm. And it, I think that's actually true of a lot of people who, we, who, quote, see the world as black and white. But of course, my progressive friends say the world is black and white too. It's just what they're black and white on is that's a little different. Right. Yeah. And having a kind of curiosity, which I'm trying to foster, I will say, that's not always my natural MO. I'm like ready to bite on any argument. That's why I'm an ethicist. <laughs> yeah. um, but learning in terms of faith to be curious before I try to press and, and try to say, hey, is there a way that maybe, maybe that's not such a good thing? Or what about this? So, so thinking about curiosity and improvisation, you talked about the stories that we live into in the past and in our present. What are some things that we might be curious about our present or about our Christian story that we might not be aware of or that would help us to improvise? What are the things that we might go unexamined that maybe ethically, that help us live ethically or improvise in our current stories? So one obvious one right now for everyone is around race in the U.S. North American context. One of the things that I think is a challenge for us as Christians kind of across the political or ideological spectrum is actually accounting for the past. So it's a good example in some ways of, um, I think there's some groups who think we should sort of be able to jump into the present moment without attending actually much to the past and to the sins of the past. And I would say as a theologian, that's a huge mistake. The reason that's a mistake is multiple, but here's a couple. One would be that God actually keeps a record of the past. Thomas Aquinas has this great line where he says, even God does not change the past. And what we as Christians believe is that God doesn't change the past, but God redeems the past. But a dishonesty or lack of truthfulness or a kind of um, covering our eyes to the past is not the biblical vision. If you want to see that in action, look at the story of David, right? Wow, what a complicated story. It's not covered up. God seems to have enough confidence in the story and in God's own power to redeem that the ugliness of David's story is right there with the wonderful things about David. And I think we struggle with that around race in, in my own cultural context, where I have some people who say, well, can't we just sort of jump now, right? Like, my family didn't own slaves, or like, like let's start at this present moment. Look at how good we've, look at how far we've come. I don't want to deny that now isn't the past, thank God. And as a Christian, and as a theologian and as someone who reads scripture, I'd say, mm, yeah, but boy, that past still is pulled into the present. We know that. You can look at the Older Testament. The prophets all talk about this, right? They're very clear that the past matters for the present. The sins of the fathers and mothers are passed on, right? As is the good and the faithfulness. 
So one area is sort of race relations and understanding the long tail of sin and evil. That's one. Uh, another I'd say actually is, is sex and gender, another thing I teach a lot about. I think there's a lot of ways that, again, people want to sort of jump into the present moment. I, I'm very thankful that I was born in the era I was born in. My mom was born the year women got the vote. That's how f I'm one generation from women being too irrational to be given the right to vote. Now, the reason that's important, you go, wow, that's like, that's intensely close to my life. So I want to acknowledge that there are ways that that past, even in my own life and my own family story, impacts not just sort of socially, but actually me, right? Just like the racial stuff I present as white. I'm considered white. That has impact. I, I have to take that up as a Christian. That's part of my inheritance. I think U.S. Christians don't want to think about an inheritance, right? I'm like, no, I'm my own individual person. I'm unique and I'm born and I'm sort of born into my own story. Well, actually, here's part of the offensiveness of the gospel, right? We're actually not born into our own story. We're born into families that are complicated, wonderful, sometimes terribly broken. We're born into countries like mine that, that it's wonderful in some ways. We could talk about some of the great things. I do think there are some wonderful things about my culture. But man, there's some, there's ugliness too, right? All of that is game. That's all taken up into God's good story. To turn away from that, I think, is a lack of faithfulness. It's a saying, I don't believe in the power of God. And somehow to believe in God is, is to engage in some kind of dishonesty about how sin actually continues in the world and becomes embedded in our very lives, our bodies, our cultures. Paul's also very clear on that, right? You've got to be transformed. You inherited stuff that is not good. It's all around you, and that intentional, open-eyed, truthful, honest glare of the gospel is, I think, an equal opportunity offender, too. Some things about so-called progressive ideologies don't like that. Some things about conservatives don't like that. Um, but that would be one way I would see sort of a couple ways that touches on us. Great. So a two-part question here, maybe to shift gears a little bit. What are you working on? Hmm. And how do you hope it makes its way down to the pew? Ooh, wow. So what I'm working on is a book and some essays here and there on sexuality and gender. I never set out to write on sexuality. I, this was like not particularly of interest, not like, I mean, I suppose sex is always what, quote, interesting, but I didn't intend to do that. But my students began to ask lots of questions around two general areas of sexuality. One is sort of the sexuality as we often talk about that, sexual identity, uh, so-called orientation, behaviors, what is and isn't allowed. But also I talk a lot about and just have taken up that I'm a woman and I'm a woman who's doing theology. It's kind of a man's world, so to speak. And I wanted to be upfront about thinking about my body and how I present as a woman, how I engage the world, and I move through the world with a particular kind of experience. And I present as a white woman, and so that means that I will move through the world also in very particular ways that others don't, who are women. So 
The book is essentially um, about re-narrating the story of the erotic. That is our erotic as in the longing and desire we have that is at the very core of what it means to be human. That is meant to be about God. So I would say sex and the erotic is about God actually, not Freud's. Freud said that God was about sex. He got that slightly wrong. So what I hope it does is um, two things. One is that it helps people reread scripture that isn't actually about commands. You were talking about sort of black and white. But it, I'm taking up mostly stories that aren't commands. They're not seemingly overtly about a command about sexuality, but are stories that I think are very truthful stories about how sexuality and sex actually work. So an example would be... Um, Judah and Tamar. So Judah and Tamar, she famously has sex with her father-in-law. And this is not a story that seemingly has a clear moral. Like, have sex with your father-in-law? No, that seems like that's not a good moral. There's no, there's no like, extraction of a principle. Instead, it's a complex story of how justice, as embedded in culture, can skew against, in this case, women. Uh, widows, how easy it is to become self-righteous, how shame can be placed on people and that that shame is not their own, how sometimes people are amazingly resilient, in this case, Tamar, the positive role of shame potentially, which Judah, when he's presented with kind of finally, he's presented with how he actually is as a man and what he's done in his fear as a father, I mean, it's just it's this amazing, complex story. What I want people to see is scripture gives the down and dirty and the wonderful and the beautiful, and it's all there. And our sexual lives are, I would say, actually cleaned up in different ways by conservatives and different ways by progressives. I would say the progressive ideology tends to be wanting to be sex positive. And I'm thinking, wow, except when you're not, except when it's sort of an overt oppression of someone else. It's actually pretty black and white, right? Conservatives tend to be black and white in another way. And so what I'm hoping people are able to do with stories like that is live into this and perform this story that our lives as sexual beings, our lives embedded in families and in cultures and living as sexual and sexed human beings is quite difficult and, and messy. And there's hope that God continues to speak to us, to redeem us, to help us know what to do with our shame. I think my people, I'll say a lot of Euro-Americans, think we don't have shame. And we also shame cultures that are shame-honor cultures, as if we got no shame. So that's a whole other thing. But, uh, but I think that's something actually many of us live with. And so my hope is that people will be able to take up scripture and perhaps without centering the rules and starting out with the rules, that we actually start out with stories. Jesus' stories of engagement with real people and how attuned he was to the nuances of gender, actually, and sexuality within his culture and context. So I hope it's that. And I also hope that people are able to find a new way of engaging with one another around sex and sexuality that is honest. Again, I think there's a lot of dishonesty in progressive ideologies and conservative ideologies around sex and sexuality. 
and be honest about uh, that we're actually all struggling to work this out in a culture that, uh, wow, it's like five minutes has changed our sexual mores or our sexual sensibilities. And there may be some of that that we might want to embrace and there's other parts of it we might want to slow down and ask some questions about. Aaron, I know you were an InterVarsity alum mm -hmm. and also InterVarsity staff. Can you talk about the InterVarsity experience for you and how, if at all, it's related to how you do theology or ethics? Uh, I sometimes joke that, although this is sort of a, it's a serious joke, that I can almost always tell the InterVarsity people in my classes. Um, and, and part of that reason is that one of the great gifts of InterVarsity let me give a little prologue. My university experience was very complicated. And it was complicated by someone who was out of control, dishonest about their own sexual behaviors and ways I stood in the way of some of that. Let me put it that way. So my own experience was actually pretty complicated. However, it is very clear to me that one of the great gifts that university gave me was this love of scripture and a confidence that the stories of scripture and the scripture itself is something worth engaging and that it could take the full impact of my intellectual curiosity and my questions and that was absolutely fine. It was part of what made it so interesting that I could ask scripture and God in scripture anything I wanted. And that kind of open-handedness with the Bible, to be around people who didn't have that kind of open-handedness, uh, who didn't take up texts and learn to read them slowly, to really chew, I mean, the monks called it masticating on the word, right? Chewing the word. And I think in some ways, university taught me to chew and be nourished on the word even through times that were excruciatingly difficult, where community was discouraging, God seemed absent, and yet I had this real core love of the texts. And that has really sustained a lot of my life. Not only, I mean, it's wonderful that I get to do it as an academic, which I never thought I would be able to do, but I did it from the time I left university and I didn't become a professor for quite a long time after that. I had other jobs and I would share, I started Bible study. <laughs> like, I love doing Bible studies with people who aren't Christians because they'll just ask anything, right? They don't have a pastor in their head saying, well, you can't ask that question or that's really what Jesus means. And I know it looks, it looks bad, but can't be bad, right? You can't ask that. And you can ask anything. And university gave me that kind of confidence. So a, a lot of our alumni do say that there's something about studying the Bible in university and college that set them up mm -hmm. for the long haul. But I think I, I want to also ask ways in which you, Aaron, feel like there's more developmentally beyond even what university gave you and what the process was like in life after university. I was, I was also in a certain era, in a certain place in university, as we all are. It's regional, it's very local. I would say one of the things that InterVarsity struggled with when I was in it anyway was to connect us to local congregations. And um, that was a really terrible error. I, I have a tremendous appreciation for my Ivy background. But that was just arrogant. It was arrogant and it meant that I didn't know 
and actually in my case, it would have helped tremendously to have the wisdom, the people outside of this, a lot of really young, enthusiastic people, God bless us, right? I mean, 18 to 22, like, but what did I really know? <laughs> I mean, now I'm a mother of an 18 and 23 year old. I'm like, what do you know? Um, and, and that was a really large hole in my life and would have served me and would have matured me and it would have exposed me to more variety of what the body of Christ means in its diversity. We were very proud that we were diverse ethnically, but we were all 18 to 22 in a particular college, you know, on the West Coast of Southern California. It's like, well, yeah, diverse kinda, but not really. And tended to be of a certain socioeconomic class. I mean, even just age diversity would have been tremendous for me. Or vocational diversity. I think the university I grew up in was very limited in the kinds of vocations that were okay to do. And in my time, it was so-called urban ministry. That's what it was called at the time. And university staff, like those, those were like the actual jobs. And so people who were like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to do either of those. And, and most people don't, and most people shouldn't. And it was like no imagination for what it might mean to be an engineer or to be a mechanic. I need you <laughs> to have all these other kinds of gifts, ways of looking at the world, ways of engaging the world, expertise. I mean, I just need you, like, practically speaking, to help me live my life better. We need doctors and nurses. I mean, like, it's endless, right? But I grew up in university with a very narrow view, which ended up when I left university because of a lot of trauma, actually. I was kind of at sea because I didn't know anything else that I wanted to do other than staff. Now, I actually think I, I would have been a pretty good staff worker, just to put it out there. Um, but it was clear I was not going to be staff. And I had absolutely no imagination or support. So, so I would say those sorts of holding up illustrations Illustrations of the myriad vocations and ways of being faithful and creative within our jobs for the vocation of following Christ. I mean, everybody's vocation is to follow Christ, right? We're all invited into this story. I would hope that job is one part of that, but we have, all, we have other kinds of roles we play. And to hold up the ordinary, I suppose, that would be the other thing I would say. In my university experience, there was kind of a hero. We didn't call it heroism, but in looking back, it was like, yeah, you kind of need to be the heroic person. You need to sell everything you have. You need to, and well, I mean, we need to wrestle with those texts, right? And it's also true that a lot of us don't do that. And so what do we do with that? How do we imagine and offer illustrations of ordinary life that can actually be tremendously beautiful, that are acts of worship, in ordinary time, uh, as mothers, as fathers, as sons, as people who are involved in your local neighborhood, playing with the kids on the street. Th there's so many ways that we live into ordinary time that are ways of engaging people and the gospel in what isn't very, to put it one way, not very sexy and is actually what most of the body of Christ is about. How would you say theology makes a difference to 
those everyday people that you were just describing playing with the kids on the na- in the neighborhood. One of Augustine's great insights right, was uh, he had pithy ways of saying things. And he has something like, all truth is God's truth. So that seems like an intellectual sort of thing. But if you think about God being in everything, not just the intellectual life, but if we believe Colossians, the world is God's world. And I would say the consciousness and intentionality that everyone should actually, every Christian should be a theologian in the sense that God is present everywhere, right? The psalmist reminds us there is nowhere we can go from God's presence. For example, when you're present with someone amidst tragedy, the consciousness of Christ's presence and the consciousness that Christ is actually living in us, this is kind of, it's crazy, right? But the, the presence of the Spirit abides in us. And an intentional attention with one ear, you might say, to the Spirit who is guiding us, who's comforting through us, who's granting us the wisdom of just the gift of presence with people in their lives, and the other ear to our neighbors, to our friends, to an awareness that God also is beckoning that person. God loves these other people. They they are made in God's image. Ellen Davis, another one of my uh, women I love who writes on the Old Testament, she says, the psalmists are great models of this, right? The God is implicated in everything, right? No matter what aspect of life. And so I would hope that everyone is a theologian, meaning there's a, there's a awareness and an intentional leaning into the Christian story. You've been listening to Theology And, a podcast of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Thanks so much for listening. You can check us out on social media. And visit us on the web at theologyandpodcast.com.